Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ian Rice, and with me, as always, Mr. David Hudson. David, how are you, sir? Ian, I'm good. It's been a wild, wild couple of weeks, but uh, I'm at home finally recuperating and uh, got back into the real world. Yes, we've had quite a few things going on, which uh, has contributed to and largely explains our extended absence, but we're happy to be back and happy to be doing an episode for everybody and uh, some exciting stuff has happened in the uh, state of America universe since we last spoke with everybody. Before we go any further, I, we do need to mention our new patrons, uh, Lou Picker, really CJ Lewis and Randy Kaler, Randy Kaler, and also Spencer Johnson, Wayne Edmondson and Mr. Matt Cochan. Thanks guys for coming on board. If you are a member of our Patreon, you know that we just unloaded some gold. And there's more gold at the end of that rainbow. To say that we got a haul of Black Crows memorabilia would be an understatement. Yes, we got many, many items. And uh, as a thank you to our patrons, we let them have first crack at the posters that we have. And then we'll be seeing some more for uh, the regular listeners after that's all sorted out. Yeah, so uh, as always, thank you to everybody on Patreon. Seriously, you will get your monies back and and then some if you join. It's a very cool community we have. We, we just have a real good time. We uh, produce a lot of uh, bonus content. The giveaways are at least one time a week. We're giving several things away. Uh, Jason Donces uh, helps us out with that. Uh, he's our producer now. And so a big shout out to him. But uh, things have been very active in the Crows world since we last spoke with you. The, the thing that generated a lot of interest was that the Crows recorded a episode of CMT Crossroads and a buddy of mine, Lewis Parchman that I went to college with actually went, sent me some clips, sent me the playlist. He acted like it was a pretty good show, but uh, the next night they appeared on the CMT awards, which we can get into that further in, in a minute, but they played, she talks to angels with Darius Rucker.
I thought it was a good. I thought it was a good showing. I put up a poll on Twitter, and more people than not said they enjoyed it. It seemed like the crowd loved it. They they were showing a bunch of different artists in the crowd. And they were all singing their you know singing their hearts out. But have you had a chance to watch it, Ian? I haven't. I originally didn't watch it when it was live because uh, the last few years I've really stayed away from award shows and that kind of thing. So I didn't catch it live, but uh, yeah, I mean, what you're saying is absolutely true. There's been a lot of good reports back on it and, you know, uh, I've never had anything against Darius Rucker, very talented guy. Uh, You know, everybody knows all the Hootie and the Blowfish songs. If you grew up in the nineties and he's had a very successful career as a, as a country artist after that. Well, according to Chris and Rich, they've been friends with him for a very long time. And, you know, back in December, he played with Rich at the REM Chronic Town anniversary shows. Yes. Uh, played World Leader Pretend, which was which was really cool. But 
it was an interesting night. I, I, you know, everybody knows I can't stand country music, especially that bro country stuff, but there was a lot of rock there. It seemed like the theme was they were trying to say that rock and country are intertwined. Al- Alanis Morissette played. There was a tribute to Gary Rossington and it was uh Chuck Lavelle, Warren Haynes slash Paul Rogers and uh, Billy Gibbons. Now that's a, that's a lot of heavy players right there on the stage. I saw a lot of negative online comments about it that that people didn't like Slash's solo or Billy Gibbons solo, but everybody seemed to like Warren Haynes solo. I mean, which you know, how can you not? I didn't think it was bad. It was clear that Slash was there to honor Gary Rossington, you know, and 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 really uh, respected him. They got the Crows got a lot of press, and that's kind of why you do those things. But let's get ourselves to the major major event that we had. Just a couple of weeks ago. Why don't you tell them a little bit about it, David? Yeah, Johnny Colt came to my house along with, I don't know, 12 or 13 other people. You were there. Gleason was there. Seth Miller was there. Sleepy Joe Anderson was there. John Hillman was there. Michael Jones was there. Rex Cunningham was there. Jeff and Gigi Smith was there. My buddy Nathan was there. Uh, Dean Gavney was there. It was a uh, really cool weekend. We, uh, all of us that were here Friday night went out and had a really good meal and enjoyed ourselves. And then, uh, Saturday, we just kind of laid around, ate some Tex Mex. And then, um, Johnny came over and, uh, we played games. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it was a a very special evening. Johnny went into a lot of trouble and effort to do what he did for us. Uh, it was really cool. A lot of us got some one of a kind stuff. A good time was had by all. It was a very special experience. I just I can't thank everybody enough for joining in and making it something special. And, of course, thanks to Johnny for the effort that he put in. He really wanted to give back to the Black Crows fans, and he did that big time. He and he tore uh, the yard up with his truck. Yeah, and uh, rumor has it he's going to be doing it again. Not tearing the yard up, but he's going to be uh, doing another one. Yeah, yeah. So, um we have to tell people now the story of him tearing up your yard because we can't just leave it at that, you know? You tell the story because you were out there. Well, that's true. I guess it was probably about, you know, some bad weather had kept Johnny down in New Orleans uh, a little longer than expected. So he was uh, arriving a bit later than anticipated. And I guess it was about half an hour out. He uh, called you and asked that we get everybody into the, you know, the backyard or whatever prior to him getting there because he had a bunch of stuff that he needed to organize and he didn't want everybody to see it before the big reveal, so to speak. So we did that and we're standing outside of David's house and and, and waiting for Johnny to arrive. And I know Johnny's coming in some big vehicle because it's Johnny Colt. What's he going to come in a Prius? So I hear down the street, I can hear a big truck heading our way. So we had cleared out in front of David's house, you know, a couple of spots for johnny to park and as he's pulling around the corner big pickup truck david and i are pointing you know where to park and he just completely blows by us and barrels onto david's front lawn but the bad weather had not only been in new orleans it had been in madison mississippi as well so david's front lawn was nice and saturated and johnny left these two giant divots from his wheels on this massive truck in the lawn and he sticks his head out the door of the truck and he says okay to park here and then he realizes <laughs> what he's done and he i mean you know he was doing it for the laugh and he i mean he genuinely felt bad that he had torn up your lawn but as as you said it's you know i mean how many people can say johnny colt tore their yard up 
Exactly. <laughs> it was not a, a malicious intent, so you know, everybody no. was having a good laugh. Yeah, no, we had some good food over here. My friend uh, Amanda and my wife Suzanne took care of us on that. We just had fun. A lot of us getting to know each other. Johnny was three hours late because of the weather. Yeah. And so we had three hours at my house just drinking and, and, and playing around. So had that. And then I turned around two days later and drove to uh, Florida with, uh, met up with Gary Radcliffe, Ray Permy, David Lassiter, and Brett Hogan, and Jason Donches got us a house about a block from the beach and, um, got to know Gary and Ray really well. David went to the vinyl shop and I went to the vinyl shop and uh, I eased all of Ian's anxiety about the Van Halen live right here, right now, because David over here used his Southern charm and talked that record store day title a day early out of the owner. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't thank you enough for that, buddy. Cause I had some uh, harsh anxiety about that. I mean, that's the Van Halen live right here, right now. And they had reissued it for record store day, but that's the beginning of, finally getting the Sammy Hagar albums uh, reissued on vinyl. So I was able to get that for him, but uh moon crush, if you ever get a chance to go, you've got to go. I think I'm going to go every year, regardless. Now tailed on the seascape resort, just across the beach. They don't oversell it. You buy pods. You just have they, people, they bring you your food and your beer to your, to your pod. Uh, they had plenty of restrooms. As a matter of fact, I never saw a line for a restroom. That's how many they had. The um, first night was L. King and J.J. Gray, Gray and Mofro, and J.J. Gray and Mofro had the best night uh, of anybody there. Did you get to see L. King? I did. <laughs> Two inside? Here's the thing with her. She sounds really good. I didn't realize that how many of her songs I had heard. She doesn't move. She performs almost the whole presentation with her hands in her pockets. Hmm. And uh, she curses a lot in between songs. Is that right? And uh, and and smokes, but I I think she's one of these people you can't pigeonhole. She's part kind of old school country. She's part pop, and then she's part kind of Ameri- Americana. Second night, I don't remember the the two first bands, but then it was Trampled by Turtles, which they're interesting to see live. And then the Avid Brothers. Uh, we left five songs in. All their songs sound the same. Uh, it just wasn't something for us. Saturday, uh, the final two we showed up to see were Marcus King and Jason Isbell, and they had major sound issues because it was so windy, like 20-mile-per-hour winds. Sound's just getting lost. And There was a lady, she goes, I just don't think we're going to be able to hear the Black Crows tonight. And I said, ma'am, Rich Robinson can cut through a Category 5 hurricane. <laughs> he can. Trust me, it's going to be okay. And so um, the ne- the final night we get there, and it me and Permy and Gary had pit passes. So they have this little area at the front and only holds 300 people. And you just stand and you're right there in front of the stage. Well, we of course got immediately got there and got as close as we could. There's a band called fits in the tantrums. Well, I didn't know their name, but I knew all their songs from the radio. I had a blast. And then by the time the crows came out, it's me, Gary and, and Ray on the rail directly between Sven and Nico. And uh, they had brought in eight more cabinets with four speakers each. And when I tell you it was the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life, it was, and it was outdoors. And like my shirt was vibrating from the bass and, um, I just sang and danced, had a great time. Sven pointed at me a time or two and laughed at me. And I made Chris laugh, you know, during 
Goodbye Daughters of the Revolution, where he does that thing. I can roll you one from an empty bag. Mm-hmm. And he always rolls, you know, like he's rolling his fingers. He happened to be looking right down at me when I did. And, and I just said, I'm going to look like an idiot. I'm going to do it anyway. And I did it. And he was like shocked that somebody knew what he was going to do. And he kind of winked and smiled at me. And, and, uh, anyway, uh, got a couple of points and waves from, uh, from Sven. So it was, it was fun. I'll say this folks. Crows are in good hands with Nico. He played very well. He played with a lot of touch, a lot of feel. He plays the Ford songs with reference, slightly makes them his own. Nothing wild, nothing crazy. There was definite smiles the entire time between Rich and him. Matter of fact, he started doing something during, she talks to angels during the second verse. And it was something that I, it was, I'd never heard anybody do that before. And he looked over and Rich is going like, yeah, 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 yeah. Keep going. And then we got remedy and and they opened with no speak fun, loud, rock and really loud rock and roll show. But by the way, all of those guys are awesome guys. And we haven't met anybody yet that that's not cool. And we don't get along with. And uh, I just had a blast with, with those guys uh, over the weekend. I wish Ian could have been there, but we had a lot of fun. David Lassiter has, has kind of seen everybody numerous times. Uh, musically and so it was fun hearing his stories we had a blast permy can cook uh permy can ride so permy and i went riding our bikes and i've just now gotten into it and he's like you know rode a bike 200 miles in a day within a nanosecond he's a city block ahead of me but uh we had a lot of fun uh, my friend brody came i think everybody really enjoyed him he's a fun guy so we hope to see as many of you as possible next year at uh, moon crush but we got some uh rather big news so before we uh, move on to our guest for this week, we should talk about the announcement that just came through that the Black Crows are going to be the special guest on the Aerosmith Farewell Tour, at least the fall leg of it. Probably 30, 40 dates, right? Mm. Uh, all around the country. I'm going to go to the Nashville one. I'd love to have a meetup. I know Brett Hogan's going to be there. Nashville's kind of centrally located, more centrally located for a lot of people. It's a great music town. It's easy to get in and out of. So, uh, Let's try to get a group together. Yeah, there's two uh, New York shows. I will most likely be at the one that's at the UBS Arena, the earlier date on the tour. Uh, where's that's the, where's the UBS Arena? It is in the Brooklyn area. Um, okay. It's a relatively new arena. I have not yet been to it. I've heard good things about it, so I'd like is to. Is that uh, where the Barclay is? It used to be the Barclays Arena? Yes. Okay, yeah, yeah. I heard it. it's amazing. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to be checking out that one. So if anybody else is going to be in that neck of the woods, I would imagine Brian Rosenberg's probably going to be there. But anybody else, just let me know, and we'll uh, we'll meet up, have a chat, and hang out for a minute. Yeah, so I have mixed feelings on it. I was really mm. hoping the entire fall tour was going to be them headlining theaters, and I was hope it was going to revolve around new music. I just I'm starting to wonder are we going to get it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an odd thing. I mean, I'm sure there's some kind of plan. It's just it's not very clear what it is. You know, that being said, I've seen Aerosmith before. I mean, it was a fun show. I had no complaints about it. I'm sure Aerosmith and the Black Crows together will be a, a pretty good evening of rock and roll. You know, and I'm not knocking on it. I mean, it's not exactly what I was hoping for. Like you said, I, I'd much rather see some, some new music happening because we keep getting teased with it. But uh you know, if this is what they got to do to get them to the point where they're putting out a new record. and But we keep getting told there's going to be new music, and they may surprise us and drop one tomorrow, but I, I wouldn't think you would tour new music as an opening act for 
Aerosmith. Yeah, but on the other hand, you know, it could be some uh, additional exposure uh, to a crowd that they're looking to get exposure to, you know, the classic rock kind of crowd. So, you know, maybe that's the uh, the idea. I don't know. I mean, I don't see it as a particularly good idea. I don't see it as a particularly bad idea. It's just kind of an idea. And uh, I'll definitely go because I'm sure it'll be fun. But uh, it is a little perplexing. I am really hopeful about how the band sounds with Nico. And Nico has played a lot of the deep tracks before. So, I mean, it's not like if Rich goes, hey, let's break out Exit, that it can't be played. Yeah, no, I would agree. And, you know, you touched on it before, but, you know, I think Nico is a much more solid fit in the band as much as I did like Isaiah Mitchell. Nico is just that much more familiar with the material and he had his own particular reverence for the material. He's played those songs with Mark Ford, you know, and he, he was a fan before he was in the magpie and, and in Rich's band and that kind of thing. So he's got a real appreciation for this music. And I think he's really in the pocket with his playing on this stuff. Listen, everybody knows how we feel about Nico. He's a great guy. He's a great player. And I'm excited to see him in the lineup. So uh, we're excited about new music. When they do release new music, we're going to make a big deal out of it, buy a lot of copies, give it away. It might be nice to get somebody from the band on to talk about the new album. So we'll cross our fingers on that one. We'll see what happens. But this week, joining us, very special guest that reached out to you, actually. He goes by Deptford John Armitage, and he is on Instagram, Guitar Hospital UK. He was Rich's tech from... It was about 91 to 95, I think. He came in at the end of the Jeff C. stuff. Ed was already in the van, and I think he made it to 95. Um, He has a history in the hardcore punk scene in England. But uh, as you were hearing this, he just um, has had this like amazing career. I mean, you'll hear the people he named off. These aren't lightweights. <laughs> he just had so many stories. We're going to have him on again at some point. There was definitely more to go, but, you know, we had to be respectful of the man's time. But he was very willing to come back in the future, and we hope he does. I mean, he spoke about his time with the Black Crows with such an affinity for it and such a appreciation for the band. And it seemed like that was a... Uh, very much a high point in his career. I want to thank our buddy Richard Page from the uh, Philadelphia Black Crows tribute band Remedy. He uh, joined us on this because he plays the role of Rich Robinson in that band. Yeah, so we thought we'd have him on to ask all the gear questions that we are completely clueless about. <laughs> yeah, so at some point, you know, it was kind of like the Charlie Brown cartoon, wah, 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 wah. Uh, <laughs> when they start talking about cabinets and stuff like that, I was like, well, I'm just going to let them roll with it, but... He was a super nice guy, has some amazing stories. Follow him on um, Instagram. He, uh, you know, he just hung out with Mark Ford a week or two ago and posted a picture of it. So uh, he still talks to those guys, it sounds like, every now and then. Yeah, he was a great guy in a fun chat, and I, I really hope we speak to him again in the future. There's definitely some more stories to be told, I'm sure. All right, so here is Deptford John Armitage. We'll see you guys later.
All right, folks, we have a really special guest joining us this week. Very excited to welcome him to the program. He spent several years as Rich Robinson's guitar tech during the quote-unquote classic period of the band and has also done guitar tech work for a numerous amount of other artists in the world of rock and beyond. Now he currently runs a guitar restoration business, the Guitar Hospital, based out of the UK. We are very excited to welcome this gentleman to the program and speak with him today. Will you please welcome Mr. John Armitage. Thanks. Everyone calls me Deptford because there's always another guy called John. So okay, all right. So we'll just we'll call you uh we'll call you Deptford. First of all, thank you for coming on. We've wanted to have somebody in this role for a while for numerous reasons. We like finding out more about the music and what goes on backstage, not like in a gossip way, but like in a you know production and and, and playing way. And uh, I I was really happy that you you know reached out to me a couple of weeks ago because I mean take the crows away from it. And you've got to have had a remarkable career and, and worked with a lot of people. And we're just really happy to have you on. Well, the crows were a big stepping stone for me as well. You know, that was, it was the f- first American band I'd worked for that were like a fucking hot axe. You know what I mean? Like I'd worked for them to come over and had no money and stuff. And then basically Rich fired his tech and they gave him another guy and he hated him. And so then I got a call. And they said, we need you to come to Oxford Apollo, right, which is like out of London. Basically, a friend of mine drove me up there. And he, he basically stole his boss's car, drove me up there. And I got there, I did the show, and they were like, okay, here's your diem, here's your bunk on the bus. I'm like, I haven't got any fucking luggage. I thought it was one show. <laughs> what year was this? Was this like 91, 92? Yeah, Jeff Cease was still in the band then. Okay. The day after, they flew back from Moscow for the Metallica show. Wow. Yeah, I, and like they'd sound checked when I got there because I was like, I didn't even know what was really going on. We just kind of, I jumped in his car. Where did you get his car from? He said, I borrowed it from my boss, but he doesn't know. <laughs> he said he left <laughs> keys in the, he left his keys in the warehouse, so he's on vacation. So we, we used his car, emptied the gas tank. How did you get hooked up with them? Well, I knew them from, they'd opened for a band called The Dogs to More, and they were bigger than The Dogs to More already in the UK. So I kind of talked to them a bit, but not that much because, you know, it was a working day, so every day I saw them. And uh, then I, I was supposed to be working for uh, Rikuri Sakamoto, who, who died this week from Yellow Magic Orchestra. But he was all, like, keyboard stuff. And I'm like, I don't know what the fuck that's going to do, how it works. Turn it on and hope for the best was my call. And they're like, you'll be fine. He's only playing, like, 12 keyboards. I'm like, what? <laughs> and then uh, I said... I'd rather do something else. And I went, well, you're down to do that. The guys I was getting my work from. And then they went, actually, it turns out that Rich Robinson's firing his tech and he's more of a keyboard guy and you're more of a guitar guy. So we're just going to trade you out. And I was like, well, anything's better than the keyboard tech gig because I'm not great with a new keyboard. I'm all right with the old ones, like Eddie Archblade. So, you know, so I then jumped in the car, went up there, tech the show. Met, I met Rich, like, I'm not joking, like an hour before the show. Wow. I never met the others until after the show. And immediately after the show, there was a, we went to go backstage, back down to the dressing room, and the security guy went, you got passes? And Chris was in his belligerent face. And he said, fuck you, man. And then it turned into a punch-up. So I just joined in. <laughs> so, so it ended up with uh, Johnny Colt hitting me with a backswing, but not doing me any damage because he hit me on the forehead because they were on a set of stairs. I don't know, but we laughed about it afterwards. He goes, hey, I didn't know you were working for us. 
And then he told me about two years later, he said, man, when you came to work for us, he goes, by the first two weeks, I couldn't understand a damn thing you said. <laughs> I'm going to have to ask him about punching Deptford out on his first day uh, on the job. Oh, it gets better because two uh, shows later, Chris jumps in the audience at his show. So Johnny drops his bass and jumps in the audience. Chris is having some beef with this guy in the audience. But I'm like, I did a lot of, you know, I grew up in a fucking rough neighborhood. I grew up in a projects. And I'd already been stabbed three times when I met them. So <laughs> I'm not too worried about these guys. So I, I jumped in the audience and just grabbed Johnny and Chris and went, get back on the fucking stage. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny's a big guy. Up. Yeah. But he's, he's not- a couple inches taller than me. They're probably the tallest band I've ever worked for, you know? But <laughs> <laughs> like I just... Fucking! As soon as you knew someone's name, you'd be introduced to someone even taller. I'm like, <laughs> but I only spoke to Jeff Seaslay maybe four or five times, and then and it was gone. Was Eddie Harsh in the band at that point when you joined up? Yep, he was. Drink like five pots of coffee a day. I was like, oh my god, the guy's just gonna have a stroke on the stage or something. That's uh, that's what we've always heard is you know just how much uh how much coffee he drank and he was always you know always drinking coffee and could drink it and go to sleep and like some yeah. of us i'd tell you steve gads like that you know the drummer steve yeah Gads. yeah yeah he couldn't make a pot of coffee before he goes to bed <laughs> that's like, not me drinking it I, I don't do caffeine anymore i'm an old guy now you know what i mean so did you follow them back to america and you tech for them uh, yeah rich and i clicked and uh so the road Richard to the road manager, I want him to be my tech. And they said to me, Are you cool with it? And I said, Yeah. So then the road manager wasn't kind of into it, really, because I cost more money than everyone else because they had to fly me in from London. Mm-hmm. So I said, Well, I'll fly myself to New York before the recording starts. They went, Okay. So I flew myself to New York. Well, I had a side chick over there. So things was good then, you know. <laughs> and, uh, so I'm hanging in New York. I'm going out to all the rock clubs with all my friends and everything. And uh, I call the road manager and he says, we don't need you. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm still in New York. So I just stayed in New York while they did Southern Harmony. But they did it in like two weeks. Yeah. They did not fuck around. They had all the songs written. And they just went in and did it. And then the next thing I know was the Remedy video. And obviously they eventually called you to come to come back Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd check in all the time. Well, the, the other guitar tech was someone I'd, I'd got on with, Paul Bloom, known as Doomer. He was Johnny's buddy from way back from the law and everything, you know? I know you come from from more of a punk background, and, you know, a lot of those shows have a lot of energy, and, you know, it's it's very palpable. But that 92 tour, the Crows had an energy about them, too, that oh, was yeah. just unreal, especially like we talk about like when they would come out to No Speak, No Slave, like that, that's just some of the most amazing video, music videos I've ever seen. Well, Pete Angelus designed that light show where there's like all the all of Christmas lights, the fairy light things. Yeah, that was very, that was very powerful. You know, but they were, they brought their A game everywhere. They didn't really do a shit show at that, fa- that stage. They weren't really smoking as much, drinking as much. You know, they were partying, but like, they were younger and they'd had a break and they knew that this was their chance. And the album went to number one, Southern Harmony. And it was like, we're fucking taking over here, you know? And they were just like, it was good. And we, we were allowed to, when you work for a hot band, you get treated better. You know, so, hey, do you need any more any more people to help you? Hey, you need any more water on the stage or anything like that, you know? And so the, the band was flying high. So 
on their coattails, all the crew got treated better, you know? So it's, it's good. And Rich and I were just going out buying guitars every day off. <laughs> so what, was like, what was that like when you joined like obviously rich is famous for having multiple different guitars on stage like almost changing out guitars every song like what yeah, was, I was that doing like 22 like, guitar changes in 17 songs at one point <laughs> but the thing was it didn't start i started with seven guitars and i had a few different tunings because uh angus young's tech showed him them on the monsters of rock tour he was a friend of mine who sadly died now he showed him all the, he used to work for Keith Richards. So he showed him all the Keith Richards tunings. So Rich was way into that. So there were capos and all this stuff on open G, you know, and there was uh, so it was cool. But I only started with seven, then it was eight, then it was nine, then it went on like that till I had like 23, 24 guitars, you know. But they were all fucking great, expensive, rare guitars. It wasn't like anything you got given for free. If you got it for free, what I mean, do you want it? <laughs> and I'm like, I can't get it home. So like, okay. I'll give it to someone else then. And it was like, it was cool. You know, I got Tony Zamedas out of retirement to build him a guitar. Okay, I'm sorry. Let, let me just say, so now that you bring up Tony, like, what was that like? Because obviously he did the disc front, you know, very similar to Ron Woods. That had the whole, um, you know, Tony O'Brien did the whole yeah. pro kind of etching. Danny, Danny O'Brien like, did that, yeah. And what, what, what was that? Uh, yeah, Danny O'Brien, sorry. Like, what was that like? And are those guitars as just phenomenal as the the aura behind them it's the sum of the parts it's like holding something that's like the first thing that happened was like Tony Tomatoes I live I live out in the, on the Kent coast in south of England but I have an apartment in London and in between it halfway is Tony Tomatoes workshop I got off with all the stuff when it started going on sale but I've already got all that stuff now you know also he's a lot shorter than me his bench was too low for me you know but uh <laughs> The first thing he said, because I was getting two made for Gilby Clark for Guns N' Roses as well. Of course, I owed Gilby a favor, long story. But what, what I was told to do was, Tony Tomatoes said, put his hand down on a piece of paper and then draw around it so I know what size hand he's got. So Richie's like, huh? And I'm like, that's what he said. <laughs> so that's what we did. And... uh it was, a, it was a good guitar. I, I I said, go for the three pickup one and let's just put Seymour Duncan Pearly Gates in them all. Let's just fucking load this thing up for bear, you know? So uh, we did that. And that was probably my first technical guitar build thing I did. It was with Tony Zemanis. He was like, what tuners do you want? Well, you know, well we're, we're like, what, what do you recommend? You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, we, we uh, didn't really see him. And then it just turned up one day and it was great. And then Rich loved it. So. It's gone now, though, in the flood. Yeah. All, most, all these guitars except that uh, red 335 all went. Yeah, and he spent a considerable amount of money restoring that 335, too. Yeah, there's a YouTube thing on it, isn't there? Because I'm still a fan of the band. Well, I'm a fan of that era of the band, but when they started being the jam band and stuff, and they were like, I mean, literally, they'd start playing Dreams by the Allman Brothers, and everyone in the audience would just fucking, like, join. It's like everyone in the building was high. <laughs> but they dreams got longer and longer and longer. Chris was like, "Yeah, it's around again." He's like, "Round again," and like literally, you, you could leave the stage, go into their dressing room, make yourself a sandwich, and come back, and it's still playing. <laughs> we used to take it in turns, just go and load up with a bit of food because the show was getting longer and longer, you know. So Rich is known for being a guy that plays a lot of different guitars and a lot of different tunings. I mean, what was that like for you? That must have been a uh, pretty busy evening. I mean, you uh, you probably don't get much of a breather. Oh, no, it flies by. 
You know, but I've worked with a lot of guys who had a lot of guitars and tunings, and some of them have operated their effects pedals as well, which didn't have no pedals then. They didn't play any solo. They played some slide parts. So my Ford was definitely a soloist in the band at that point, you know. And Rich grew in as the, you know, and Amorica and stuff. He started playing more. But uh, I think he liked showing his collection off. <laughs> I mean, he'd literally buy a guitar and go to me, I want to use it in this song. And I'd have, like, every night, I'd, I'd be the one who got the set list from Chris, take it to Rich. Rich would go, I'm not fucking playing. Blah, blah, blah. And then I'd have to go back to Chris and he goes, He's a fucking dick. I can't play. I can't sing those three in a row. And I'm like, man, I'm not getting in the middle of this shit. So, but <laughs> you're gonna have to work it out. But I had the I had the best handwriting, so I had to write one set list. I didn't want anything printed out. And then I'd have to get them all copied up and stuff. And then I'd have to write my guitar changes. And I kept all the set lists, all the guitar changes in a big book that we used to call the Deptford Files. <laughs> I was like, what did I use for that? And it's like rummage, rummage, you know. And, uh, it was good. It kept me on my toes. And I looked after Eddie as well with all his keyboards. But uh, I didn't get paid for looking after Eddie. But Eddie didn't want to pay me because Eddie needed his money for other things that were a priority in his life that I wasn't really aware of at the time. You know? So give um, us a funny Ed Harsh story. Everybody's got one. Give us a good fu- funny Ed Harsh story. Well, when it, it was, basically, he started treating me like a servant. And Rich was pissed going, you're my tech. Fuck him. Don't set his stuff up. And I'm like, I can't. I can't not set his stuff up. That's not fair on everybody. He can't set it up. He's, he's not physically strong enough to get the lid off that ham and doing stuff, you know. And I was, I'm pretty big guy, so I was like, you know, he used to take all the cigarettes out of the dressing room and uh, he used to keep them in his wardrobe case. So when, when Rich said to him, you need to fucking pay Deptford, you need to give Deptford something for the work he does for you, man. He says, because he doesn't have to do that. And Rich was really cool about it. I'm like, oh, I don't mind. I'm, I'm just along for the ride here, you know? So Ed gave me two packs of cigarettes. But when he opened the drawer in his wardrobe case, he had like fucking 10 cartons in there. <laughs> he gave me two packs of cigarettes. I'm like, fucking well, thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm blown away. Eddie Harris was giving me the banned cigarettes. And, uh, but it was, it was okay. It was like... Uh, he, he, he was such a jazz guy, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, that's Catman and all this. And it was always like, a, he's from Detroit, so he's very different culturally to everybody else. Numerous members of the band have said he's the best musician they ever played with. And obviously, you've been around a lot of people. I mean, where, where, do you agree with that statement that he's one of the best musicians that you've been around? I'd say he could have been a lot better than he was. He, was, he had such big hands because he was such a big guy. He could spread his hands over the octaves and stuff. So he could play this only the stuff that the big guys played. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, Chuck Lavelle's got his feel and all these guys have got their their their, their styles. But Eddie could play basically anything he wanted. As long as he was straight, he could fucking play it. But if, even when he was fucking high, he could play all the Black Crow songs. They were, that was the thing, I think. Part of the problem was he uh, he got bored. He could play all that stuff standing on his head. He could play it with one hand, having a cigarette and stuff. And you know, he was an interesting guy. So I never really met anyone like him because he was he was a very good player, but he didn't really seem to give a fuck until he was playing. Then he's like, "Man, this this stuff's not set up right. This, I'm not getting this. I'm not getting that." And I'm like, "We did a sound check." And he goes, "Yeah, but I wasn't really paying attention then." <laughs> he goes, I was waiting for his cat to show up. I need a bit. So it was cool, but like. Rich thought he was in the way. Rich hated him having on his side of the stage. But it was just, there were two people on the other side of the stage. 
So then that so, was that. We got Chris Trujillo as well for a while, you know? Right. So for the uninitiated out there, what exactly does an evening's performance consist of for the guitar tech? Well, you do the sound check, make sure everything's working, I'll make sure Richie's happy, make sure Ed's happy. Then I do the to and fro of the set list. Then I have some dinner. Then I come back and I just start tuning them up. But it was usually the same guitars for the same songs. It was just what songs were getting played. I used to be religiously tuning all the guitars, all the guitars. And I'm like, wait a minute, it's not playing that one again. Just fucking put that one back and leave it, you know. I came to the conclusion that you really only have to have one guitar in tune at any one point. It's the one he's wearing. And the next one is the spare one for that one. And then once it's okay for that, you've done tune the spare, then you start tuning for the next song. We, we did so many guitar changes, we didn't even discuss it. We didn't really talk between the songs or anything. We like, just, you know, just handed them over. Like, I nailed him right in the head once with it. <laughs> the lights went out, and I just I took and heard him go, oh, thanks, definitely. <laughs> the lights came back on. He's gone. He was just starting to play. You know? Did you see that video recently in Australia where a fan jumped on stage and Rich oh, yeah. just yeah, gave him the keys? Rich is welcome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you look like you need a hat, but I don't have a hat, so wear my telecast. <laughs> how many how, at that point? How many guitars was he touring with? It depended on the leg, because we'd cut down for Europe because we saved the freight, you know. But we'd have like maybe twenty. It, but it, it sounds a lot, but it's when you've started with seven and worked up to 20, it's just like jogging, isn't it? Like you run a mile, then, you know, next thing you know, you're doing 10 miles. You just build up to it. So it was cool. And were you changing the strings every, every like, every show? Or, like, how often were you having to do Most that? of them I did, yeah. And if you broke a string in the sound chair, I changed the whole set after the sound chair. We didn't break an awful lot of strings. But it used to... Uh, Right where the nail away on the strings, his hand used to bleed. So uh, I talked to some other tech guys, and they're like, I'll just put nail polish on his nail, otherwise it won't grow back. It'll just get worn down, it'll be raw. And then, it, and then I could see that he was in pain. So that was another thing I did after Sanchez, was just put nail polish just on one side of his finger. He'd just sit there and I'd put that on. And uh, he wouldn't let anyone open his drinks except me. He didn't, because there was a lot of drugs flying around here, and the rich was not a user. So. But he used to say to him, why don't you just be like Defa? Defa doesn't fucking do drugs. And they were like, wow, I was partying my fucking ass off. <laughs> I didn't smoke pot until about seven years ago. I started smoking it again from since high school. Just because I was having trouble sleeping. That's why I gave up caffeine. So if you've got no tolerance to pot, fucking no, it takes you down. <laughs> you just smoke a pipe, go to bed, done. And, you know, no doctor's prescription. <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you with the Black Crows? I did the end of Shake Your Money Maker, and I did all of Southern Harmony. And then during America, everyone got more fractured, all got more fractured. Chris and Rich were not getting on. Mark was getting himself into a state. Steve was just engaging, and Eddie was in a mess, and... Then heroin started appearing and all that. And some of the crew were doing heroin and stuff. And there were some shady characters just popping in for a few minutes and all this, you know. It all did, the vibe changed. And then they, Chris felt at that time, I, the way I saw it was that uh, they weren't maintaining their position at the top. And uh, he was saying, people don't get us. We should, we should, we're more of a cult band. And then it was all the right. But then, the, then all the money things started to change because 
they'd been living well because they'd been earning big. And then I said, earned is big. And it, it was just like, it just changed everything a little bit. But Rich didn't give a shit. He just carried on because Rich was not a, even though he bought cars and guitars, he didn't really, you know, but then everyone started getting married. So like that, that unity kind of gets broken, doesn't it? It's like everyone from high school, everyone starts getting a serious girlfriend. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, like another one we lost, you know? But it was, I mean, I had, I had a great time. I had to carry John McEnroe out to dress him. I'm in a Beacon Theatre where we just threw a whitey in the middle of the dressing room. <laughs> so I just had to carry him out. He wasn't up. It was he was smoking McCris. fucking that's why smoking McKees Richards in it. You know. <laughs> what was your favorite guitar that Rich was playing at the time? It would vary. He had a a yellow Les Paul. P90s in there, Les Paul TV yellow that he did could have been so blind with that I really liked. And they had a, a 61 double cutaway junior that I really liked. But I'm, I'm a different kind of player and a different kind of music fan. I like short songs. I grew up in short songs. Because so. their songs got longer. But that 335 was a real nice guitar. Zemedis was nice. He had a, a Grand Parsons B Bender Telecaster. That was cool. I'd never seen a B-Bender before. I had to ask him what it did. I was like, what's this doing? <laughs> he had some nice guitars, but they were probably my favourite. And he had a Gibson Dove that he used for She Talks to Angels that I really liked. That just fitted me better than him, I always thought. But it was his. So, you mentioned a lot of gear shopping, you know, during, you know, when you, new, new town, new opportunity to buy gears. Like, tell me yeah. what that like with Rich, like, and w- were you the one going out finding stuff and bringing it back to him, or and oh, what- we were going, we'd go together? He, he'd just go. Rich is like you've you've all met Rich, right? He's not very like Chris is the the voice of the the band, isn't he? The front man. Rich would just go, "Hey, want to go for lunch? Buy a few, look at some guitars." I go, "Yes, sure." Okay, he goes, I'll "Pick you up at like one." That be it, and he'd just get a cab from his hotel and pick me up. And he was always on time, and I was on the time. So we didn't have any. That's what I mean. I'd just get in. Like, hey. And uh, if he was pissed at anyone, he'd just unload on me, and I'd just be like, I don't even fucking know what this guy is he's talking about. So, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what, be careful. Don't don't go crazy on him and all this. Like, and he, he's always going, I want to fire this guy. And I'm like, I would fire anyone. What are you going to do then? I'm thinking, don't fire that guy. He's the guy that gets all the fucking blow. <laughs> <laughs> you thinking, man? <laughs> Any memorable like purchases, any things that you're like, oh my god, like that was a phenomenal guitar that he bought, or he bought a Firebird that I really liked, a '63 Firebird, and uh, it was always buying guitars, you know. I never, he never bought Gibson SG, which is my favorite guitar. Surprising he didn't go for the SG because a lot of slide players really gravitate to that guitar, you know. Yeah, well, it's Doll and Derek and people like that, you know. But uh, I think maybe he thought because he'd seen Angus Young with one, it was a bit like, nah. I'll leave that for him. <laughs> but uh, he had a couple of nice telecasters and stuff. He had that Gretsch duo jet that he used to open with no speak, no slavers. But no, the 335 was just for remedy, really, at one point. Obviously, that's become a, a mainstay of his set. Oh, yeah. They, they, I think they even do a signature one of them. Yeah, I got one. <laughs> Any good? <laughs> oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful guitar. Yes, it would have been involved in it. He wouldn't have just said, oh, yeah, do that. He'd have fucking wanted to see him at every stage and go, oh, I did feel like my one and stuff, you know. I think that was the one he connected with the most. 
at any point, were you able just to kind of during some of the shows relax and just take in what was going on and how special it was? Or oh yeah, you- some of, some of the time you could just when everything was going well and everyone was getting along and all the equipment worked and all the crowd were like up. Oh, it was just they were great, you know. They were, you know, you you just go. I'm witnessing a, a, a moment here, you know, and, and you think. I'm only a very small part of that moment. I didn't even buy a ticket, but, you know, I'm here. Then there was a thing where Chris went to a NASCAR thing, and he came back, and he went, man, I love NASCAR. And he goes, I want all the crew to wear NASCAR pit crew suits. That was it. So everyone got a pit crew suit, and they all had patches on them, and they were fireproof. And I'm like, well, you can't really wear this on top of your rest of your regular clothes. It's going to be fucking so hot in these theaters like that, you know? So when we did it all, you had to fill a foreman and everything for this company. And I put down medium, like, and I'm six one, and I'm like, I don't know, fucking two hundred and fifty pounds or something. I'm a big guy like that, you know. I was skinny at end, but you know. So I put a medium down, and so I was a lucky guy. I had the privilege of watching his father-in-law do all his yard work in a black prospect crusade. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, Bridge got me a disc from Shake Your Money Maker when, of course, yeah, I, I was late to the. They had it all been handed out and stuff, and got me a tour jacket. Said I wanted to have these. So it was cool. I've still got a disc. I sold the tour jacket to a really massive Crows fan, and I gave him a set of Crows rolling papers as well that I had kicking around. And he was like, "Oh my god!" And I'm like, "Yeah, they didn't even sell them in Europe." And I was like, "I don't know." So, yeah. Tell us what it. What's it like after the show for a tech? I mean, you're not you're not there for like packing up the speakers and everything, are you? You're just getting the, the guitar gear and getting out. Guitars, his amps, his cabinets, his cables, then all Eddie's stuff packed up. Then I see that into the truck. Then I make sure it's all packed in the truck. I pack in the truck every night because I had the most experience. Also, for some people, it's shitty work. They don't like doing it. Like Duma, Paul Bloom, he didn't like doing it. Noodles, the drum to Steve's tech. They weren't really big fans of it, so I didn't mind doing it because I'd always done it. And then after that, there was a stereo in the dressing room. We did all the wardrobe, packed the wardrobe cases. Keith Moon's old drum fills were a stereo in the dressing room. So we'd set that up. And then we'd uh, basically wait around for that, to for the guys to finish and head out. So sometimes, if I was if we were tired, we'd just go to bed and wait for someone to tell us, hey, they've gone, and we'd come in and pack it up. Sometimes we just go and join the party. But. That's what uh, our, our we've become friends with Jeff Dunn, you know, who did the, oh, the yeah. sound. Indeed. And uh, he said, man, sometimes we're just sitting out in the alley in the bus waiting on them to get through listening to the stereo and pack it up. Yeah. We'd do like probably three nights a week, four nights a week. If they didn't have anywhere, if it wasn't far to drive, they'd be like, fuck it. Let's just stay here and party. The venue would be like trying to kick them out because it'd be like two in the morning. And then Chris would be like, fuck that, to turn the stereo up, you know. But then they used to let me play music if I'd come and party with them. I introduced them to Atomic Rooster. It's like a British, like kind of proggy rock band. Well, they have a Chris especially has eclectic taste in music. Oh yeah, that's what I mean. But I'm into punk and hardcore, and they all fucking hated that. <laughs> what is wrong with you, Deadford? All that punk rock shit and all that. Well, know? see if you if you hear them in interviews now, they talk about that they were punk rock fans growing up. They like some. They didn't like some of the bands I liked. Uh, but it, like Chris, Chris was in and went for a big Grateful Dead phase. It was all Allman Brothers, Grateful Dead. That's when all the jam stuff was happening, you know. And I opened for the Allman Brothers, and we did a few shows with the Grateful Dead. 
I know that was quite an experience. I, I'd never seen a dead head. I didn't really understand. <laughs> like, I'd heard of dead heads, but I thought it was a derogatory term, you know? And then when I saw people, they were fucking, I've never seen that many people that high. <laughs> Pretty impressive, you know what I mean? But it was, it was the, that was the cult. You know, a friend of my wife works with Bob Weir. She's still the same now. She's them guys just, you know. But the other, the other thing was uh, all the deadheads were super rich. They're all the dot-com guys now, aren't they, you know? So, like, they'd hired up, they'd charter their own jets. Trust fund <laughs> hippies is what I call yeah, them. Yeah, but they don't do fucking street drugs. They're doing primo weed, primo mushrooms, primo ass. <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's not, like, a lot of bad trips. And if there are, one of them's probably a fucking doctor anyway, so... <laughs> You know what I mean? They probably got all. They could just write a prescription for themselves and just change. It. <laughs> what were what were what were a few of the more memorable shows that you did with them? We did a show in St. Louis, and one side of the PA fell into the audience, <laughs> and uh, and started a show. And Doom was like, "Man, I didn't realize I set up this far on stage." And he went, Holy shit, the PA's gone! And uh, it fell in, but it was still plugged in, and all the fans caught it. I said, a couple of got a bit of an injury, you know, like like a bleep bloody head and stuff. But basically they caught it. But it was like no speak, no slaps. It's going These are front of people, so they're like the best fans, aren't they? Like, fuck and then it all got put back up and they went to come off stage and come back on and there was a lot of bullshit. So then we came back and did a free show there. There was there was a radio broadcast where they probably got paid for, I don't know, but but that was a fucking great show. This uh, Joe Louis Arena, who was it was like, it was pretty sketchy around there as well. So, you know when, like they've when they've got armed guards watching your bus and stuff like that. It always gets you feels makes you feel a little bit more alive, doesn't it? Like, <laughs> like, this could go fucking wrong. This is great, you know. It's at that age, aren't you? And we used to just go to strip bars on days off all the crew because you could always buy blow, see great women, get decent steaks, and get beer. And, no one was threatening to kick your ass for having long hair. It was great, you know. So it was a great time for me. You know, there was some funny other things. Yeah, there, there was a bed and road case made, right, called Johnny Wong's Bar. Johnny Colt used to like making cocktails. So we had this big road case with a fucking neon sign that popped up out of it. And it was start solo cups. It used to get ice, and it was kind of it. And then Johnny Wong's bar was open, and then there was like, no, none of the crew should be drinking beer before the show. But I was drinking screwdrivers. I'm like, hey, Steve Cole, <laughs> have a screwdriver. And he'd make me one. Deferent, I'm your screwdriver, boy. <laughs> so, but it was great, you know. So to Johnny Wong's bar, but that ended up with no one cleaning it. And then the, the neon sign got broke, and then the end, it just got left in the warehouse, you know. But Richie's wardrobe case, because everything Rich wore was leather. His wardrobe case weighed about the same as like a fucking, I don't know, Coupe de Ville, 70 Coupe de Ville or something. <laughs> <laughs> in a fort lived to get in a truck nearly. Eddie's had about four things in it, just cigarettes. Pretty funny. Do you do you still talk with Rich? Occasionally. He changed his email address. So uh but yeah, well if he comes to if he comes to London, I don't go and see him. The last time they came, they were doing the Shake Your Money Maker album. And uh I remember he was playing guitar, so I knew Audley from Choir Love before he joined the band. And I knew Sven from around. Of course, everyone knew Sven. But, uh, yeah, things just changed. People left and uh, their, their music changed, their lifestyle changed. I mean, 
Like when I started with the Black Crows, except for uh, Eddie, everyone lived in Atlanta, you know. And then when I left, I think anyone lives in Atlanta. And I don't know if Steve went to Nashville. Johnny might still have been in Atlanta. So I saw Johnny when he had uh, New Savages, New Barbarians, or something they were called. I can't remember. He had a solo thing going on. I went to see them. It was it was interesting. They were playing in the parking lot, and I was doing uh, the amphitheater with the opening act for Green Day. It's pretty funny. <laughs> but I stayed to uh, see Johnny play. He's a good showman. Sven was probably a better bass player, but Johnny fitted the part with uh, the way Johnny looked and everything. That was that was how the Crows looked. They all looked like they were in the right band. <laughs> like you know, you get them bands, and there's one of them just saying, "What the fuck's he doing? How did he end up in this band?" You know, and they all looked like proper Southern rock guys. Well, outside of the Crows, I mean, you toured with a lot of the big British bands out there. You were with Iron Maiden for a bit, the Stereophonics, the Verve, Def Leppard. What are some of the memories you have from touring with some of the other bands on your long resume? I saw Kelly, a rich from Stereophonics, last week. They've got a, a side project called Far From Saints with some other guys. So I, I, one of them I went to school with. And that, but it was great seeing them. And he said, he goes, we met you, you, we were the opening act on the tour 26 years ago, and you were the first guy to come and help us out. And I go, I've known you 26 years. And I was like, man, you look way older than that. You know? but, <laughs> like, if I see Kelly around, we always hang. He's a nice guy. And I worked for the Manic Street Preachers for a long time. Did you but, ever uh, go see the Stereophonics when Gorman was drumming for him? Yeah, yeah, I toured with him. I opened for Lenny Kravitz. I came in again after the sound check. I never fired someone. But I knew Kelly and Rich, and uh, I knew I knew a lot of the guys around the band, so it's pretty cool. And uh, that was fun. And uh, I knew half the crew from Lenny Kravitz, just from doing the same festivals in Europe in the summer with the Crows. So the Crows and Lenny Kravitz, and we went to Lenny Kravitz's house one night in New York. It's fucking hilarious. So we get there, and he's completely forgotten we're coming. There's like nothing in the house, nothing to drink, anything. It's like me and Mark Ford and Chris and... I think Johnny might have been everyone just like, what the fuck? <laughs> he basically was just sitting there in the bathroom. Hey, yo, come in. Come in. We came to party, man. <laughs> He's like, you want a coffee? <laughs> I'm like, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, we went to a, we left there, we went to a bar with uh, Tony and Craig from his band. And uh, the, the rumor was that Lenny didn't like Cindy the drummer, that he couldn't click with her. And that they were going to do, uh, Craig was going to fly back to LA and audition some other drummers on the choir because they had like a week off. So he went to this bar and Mark Ford and Tony, the bass player, started fucking really drinking, like probably like Easy Rider level drinking, you know, <laughs> Angel Clubhouse level drinking, you know, and we're like, holy shit. And then Tony flew to India and never went to these auditions. And in return, Cindy kept her job and John Paul Jones played the MTV Awards. <laughs> it was like, I was just from going to a bar. <laughs> it was just dominoes fall, don't they? You never know where they're going to end up. You never knew what was going to happen when you talked to the Black Crows, whether people were going to be fighting. Or... We did one gig and they tried to arrest Raul on the way to the stage. It was their security guy then, Raul Flores, like a big Mexican guy, like probably nearly seven foot tall, huge. And uh, he's walking to the stage with Chris, and these two guys suddenly make a grab for Chris, and uh, Raul basically swatted them away. And one came over by me, and I was like, man, this shit going down. I like to be involved in that in them days. I was a young guy. 
And I'm, I was a proper football hooligan when I was a touring as well, you know. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, I'm in. So I came running down off the So I grabbed the guy by the throat. He puts his hand down his shirt and pulls out a detective's badge and a chain. And then they were trying to arrest Chris. They arrested Raul. I just literally took my pass off, put it in my pocket, jumped over the barrier, ran into the crowd. <laughs> and uh, Chris went on stage and went, we're not here as a fucking... It was in Louisville, Kentucky, right? And Chris went, we're not here as a fucking sting operation for your local cops. Fuck this, we ain't doing the show. And they walked off. And then I'm like, well, I'm putting the guitars away. Fuck this, you know what I mean? Because it's not happening. They have left, right? And the roadman's coming there. Oh, the band refuses to do the show. Well, you're going to have to ask for a refund or we'll reschedule and all this. And the cops are getting shitty. And some of the cops are security guys for off-duty jobs for cops, you know? And I'm, like, I'm loading the truck. And uh, the truck was right at the... Right in the alley behind, but uh, opposite was a multi-story car park. And every time I pushed the case out to push it up the ramp, this fucking guy just started throwing stuff at us like apples and fucking solo cups of water and stuff. Done anything that they had, really. You know, no money, though. Never any money. <laughs> big, big water sea notes to come down or something. You know? And uh, <laughs> we just literally packed this shit up and just got in the truck, got in the bus, and bailed. You know, I wanted to ask you about. You were actually the Guitar Tech at Live Aid when Spinal Tap had 11 bass players out on the stage. What was that like? Well, like, I got a call, funnily enough, from the same guy who got me the Black Crow job, and he goes, hey, uh, do you want to do a show with Spinal Tap? And I'm like, well, who would? <laughs> it's rehearsal. And then they're doing one show, and I said, where is it? He said, it's Live Earth. And I'm like, okay, cool. You know, I've done Wembley Stadium a ton of times because I live in London, so... You know, I've been there eight times in my football club. And uh, I said, yeah, I'll do it. So we did a rehearsal and Stonehenge arrived. So I labelled it all Spinal Tap on the back. Like I labelled all the equipment just because. So a uh, guy who plays Derek Small said, I see, put the name on the back of Stonehenge. And I goes, well, I don't want to get mixed up with anybody else's when we get there. <laughs> they were like, Okay. But they thought it was smaller than they'd imagined. They actually had a Stonehenge conversation for real. I thought it was going to be a little bit bigger than that. <laughs> like, is, is it real? Is it real? Are they in character? And I labelled all the equipment with their characters' names. I didn't even know their real names. I just watched Spinal Tap so many times. So we did a rehearsal. We go to Wembley. We set up on risers, and there's a ton of bands on. Then uh, basically the road manager says to me, okay, we need to find some people to play big bottoms i said well who does that and he goes well you can i'm like okay so i went around and i basically went into all dressing rooms and said uh spinal tap would like your bass player to play big bottoms on stage i said all you got to do is bring a bass we'll roll out a live bass stack i had two rows of five ampeg stacks and they're all live and some wanted to do it and some didn't and uh so that's cool. So Kirk Hammett wants to do it. Lars wants to do it. And I said to Lars, have you got a bass? He said, no, and no, I'll just wear someone else's. I went, well, you kind of got to be a bass player to play it. He goes, well, I want to do it. And I said, well, you're a fucking drummer, son. Sorry, you can't come up. Right. <laughs> that was my event. He he bought me and Paul Bloom lunch on that Monsters of Rock tour, except he left, same as going to the bathroom and fucking bailed and left us with a bill. So that was my <laughs> event. And uh, so anyways, from place, I had Paul Allen from Microsoft who's fucking a hell of a guy, hell of a guy. And then uh, at the end, I only had nine. 
right? Something happened. And so there was a someone, the equipment had gone. They were like, well, I'm like, well, you, I don't have a spare, I only have one spare base. I can't lend you that. Something happens. You know, I know it's spinal tap, but it's still not great for me. So uh, there's a guy called Paolo Natini playing, and I, his bass player was doing it. Paolo Natini manager, his brother's a friend of mine. He's a guitar maker called Jimmy Moon. So Brendan Moon's there, and I'm like, hey, Brendan, do you want to come up and play with Spinal Tap? I honestly thought he was going to fucking piss himself. He was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And uh, then Metallica realized all their stuff was tuned to half step down, so they had to turn the amps down or turn the bass down. It looked like they were playing us. But I'll tell you what, the fucking noise of, like, 10 people all trying to play the same song, of which nine of them haven't rehearsed it, didn't sound check it or anything. They weren't, they were basically, I was just going around putting all the amps on standby. <laughs> it sounded like a mine shaft collapsing up there or something. It's just a rumble of chaos, you know. I saw on your website, you had a quote, said John is one of the most renowned guitar techs in the, in the industry by a little guy named uh, Sir Paul, Paul McCartney. Yeah, I've seen him a couple of times. You know. <laughs> He's a, I'm a friend of the family. And I've done master classes at these music schools and we always go to London shows. And, you know, he's a really nice guy, a real nice guy. And all these people that work with him are real nice. And all his family are nice. So, you know, I've just known him for a long time. And my wife's really good friends with his eldest daughter. But I also maintain Mick Jagger's guitar collection, but he didn't want to do a testimonial. Well, so what do you mean, like, maintain? Like, what's involved in that? And, like, how many guitars does he have? Well, he's been in that band since 1962, I think, and he's probably bought or been given a guitar every year. And then uh, he's got something bought, and then he's, you know, he's got a music room, and he doesn't want them all out, and some are just for touring. So it was just like, if he wants to, like, start writing songs, I get a call saying, uh, Mick's going to be back in town on Wednesday, so uh, we'd like to make sure everything's up and running and working properly on Tuesday. So when he walks in, it's good to go. Because that's when you've got money. That's what happens. When you come to your residence somewhere else, the team goes ahead and makes sure all your fucking cable TV, your internet, your heating, your food's all there. Everything's done. You know I mean? The beds are all made and all that. So you're not like me when I go home and there's nothing in the fucking fridge. You know, it's like, <laughs> so I just do that. But literally, he calls. I just jump in a cab. They pay. He's a real nice guy. But he started, he rang me. Someone, uh, a keyboard player, another keyboard player, vaguely, he's a good friend, a friend of mine, another musician. And suddenly, this guy calls me and says, hi, um, I've got Mick Jagger here to talk to you. Puts him on the phone. But I think it's someone fucking around. <laughs> right? Because he's a hi, man. Because he talks exactly how he talks. That's how Mick Jagger talks, right? He's a hi. So I'm like, hi, how are you? And he goes, okay, I want to talk to you about building me a music room. And I'm thinking, well, either way, I'm going to go with this. Because if it is him, this is a great fucking opportunity. And if it's not, I'm going to see where it goes because it's clearly someone who knows me and will see who blinks first here. But basically, I had to just write everything down he wanted and get it all organised. He just called me and said, oh, Matt gave me your number. Okay. And I didn't even know Matt who. I didn't even ask him who. But his keyboard player, Matt Clifford. But uh, I just went, oh, okay, cool. Like like I knew who it was, but I had no idea. But he was a real nice guy. He's all business, but polite, professional what do you want from a, a high-level customer? So, but, like, are, are you setting up like five guitars or are you literally going in there and he's got like a storage of like 30 guitars that you want to make sure are all... Basically, it keeps the same ones in the same houses now. So I just look after London ones, really. And if, if there's any problems elsewhere, when he comes back, he'll bring it back with him. And then they call me up 
say, can you look at these? And sometimes I say, send them over to the workshop. And they're like, nah. So then I have to go there. So I have a, a call-out kit that's basically for me Jagger. I just, just jump in the cab and then go over there, you know. Sometimes it's simple as putting new batteries in stuff. Sometimes there's loads more to do. It just depends when you get there. It's like being a doctor, you know. What's in that fucking bag? <laughs> the stethoscope? Is that it? What else you got there? Pen? Newspaper? Apple? Who knows? Well, John, like I said, uh, it was very cool of you to reach out to us. And, and people, are, uh, people are going to geek out over this episode, I promise you, especially with all the gear talk and, and all the stories. And I didn't tell you beforehand, and I, I meant to tell you, so I don't want to put you on the spot, but we always ask our guests to give us a song to play out. It can be a song by anybody. It can be a punk song. It can be a Crow song. A Paul McCartney song. It makes no difference. Remedy. We can definitely, definitely do that. Uh our thanks to John for coming on, and our thanks to our buddy Richard Page for uh, sitting in with us. Uh, Richard's always welcome. Uh, he's a friend of the podcast, and so we'll throw it to our producer, Jason. Stay tall, everyone.
hero. 